This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I had a panic attack dropping my son off at school this morning. A full-blown panic attack. I was terrified at the prospect that it could be my last goodbye with my baby. Wondering which would be the picture, the moment, the stories I might have to tell to try to explain what this boy means to me. I look at the teachers that were opening the car doors to greet him. And I prayed in those moments that they would care enough to protect my child, all of our children. And frankly, I resented that they might have to. My nine-year-old son, who was realizing now that children his own age were murdered inside their classroom, inside their school, he's trying to process it all. And he saw my own anxiety this morning, and I felt guilty for even causing a little bit of his own. And he actually said to me, don't worry, mommy, I will be home tonight. He said, I make a promise to myself every day that I will make it home at night. Now, these should not be the promises any child has to make. Not in a nation where our promises to keep them safe have not been kept. You see, I remember when Mr. Rogers was trying to comfort kids like me by telling them, when you see scary things, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. Okay, well, as far as we know, the helpers stood in the hallway. The helpers heard shots even after they believed it was a barricade and not an active shooter. And when the helpers aren't being tight-lipped, they're offering changing narratives. But I'm still going to look to these helpers. But this time, it'll be for answers. Because we have questions that do need to be answered. There are parents who buried their children today. In fact, the first full funerals are now being held one by one, one week after that attack that has shaken this Texas city to its entire core and much of the nation along with it. And the deep anguish we're all feeling, it's not abating. And neither is the pressure for the answers. And you know what? I'm going to spend much of this hour helping to apply that pressure, asking those questions that we just don't have answers to yet. Because that's what the families of these 19 children and two teachers deserve. That's what the survivors deserve. So why can't they get these answers from the Uvalde police, even one week later? Questions like, why did it take so long to take down a mass murderer as children were begging for help? And why did the police chief in charge of this school district order his officers to hold off on storming these classrooms? And why won't that chief, Pete Arredondo, answer the key questions himself? I mean, he was the incident commander, and he won't answer these questions from reporters. In fact, 
he won't even answer them from the Texas Rangers. Hasn't talked to them apparently in two days. Won't respond to the Rangers' request for even a follow-up interview. Why not? We're gonna examine the helpers. And the 78 minutes between the time this murderer entered the school and when he was killed. Were the 19 officers inside Robb Elementary aware that there were 911 calls coming from children inside? Did they know about, for example, this call, appearing to capture one of those kids telling a dispatcher they got shot? Are you injured? And what about this tape from an apparent dispatcher? Did the officers inside the school, did they know about this one? Full of victims, full of victims at this moment. So why were Border Patrol agents the one to finally go in to act? Also, why was it called a barricaded subject situation instead of an active shooter one? I mean, in times like this, I think about the dangers that we all do, that so many first responders face and how so many valiantly face those risks. Like the heroes we saw on 9-11, some of whom saw one of those Trade Center towers fall and still charged into the other burning building, knowing it was likely to go down as well. And the countless law enforcement officers who do answer their call to duty every single day. The ones who run toward danger when the rest of us run away. The ones who know the risks to their own personal safety and they take the risks anyway. The ones we look for. The helpers. Yet, 78 minutes of terror in Uvalde. And that number, 78 minutes, it's more than many parents even get to spend with their children in the mornings before they're off to a school where they ought to be safe. 78 minutes, 21 lives gone. So when will the answers come? And what should happen now? Get some perspective from someone who's experienced a similar horror firsthand. Chris Van Gelly was one of the first officers on the scene at Sandy Hook Elementary School almost one decade ago, where 26 children and adults lost their lives. He's now chief of police in Plainville, Connecticut. I'm very glad you're here, Christopher. Thank you for being here, Chief. I, I have to tell you, I am having a very difficult time wrapping my mind around the fact that officers were on the premises, in the building it seems, and did not go into the classroom. What is your reaction to that? Well, good evening, Laura. Thank you for having me. You know, as soon as I heard there was another shooting, uh, and, and of course this one being a, a uh, elementary school, you know, my heart sank. Uh, it was a gut punch and, and some of those old feelings came back and I'm sure, you know, the same feelings came back for the other officers that were with me that day at Sandy Hook. Um, you know, when the, when the initial reports started to come out of, of the officers and how they handled the call, uh, I expected that. You know, anytime something like this happens, you're going to have reporting coming out about the response, and we need to hear that. We need to know what the police department's response was so that we, as fellow law enforcement responders, can learn from those situations. We can learn what they did well. We could also learn from the areas in which they didn't do well. Unfortunately, I can't wrap my head around, you know, how long uh, they waited. I know it's a little 
on. I don't want to, um, you know, judge before we have the full facts, but they shouldn't have waited, you know, to be quite honest. This is a active shooter response. Go ahead, Chief. It was an active shooter response? Co correct. So, you know, I can understand where he may have stopped shooting for a while, so they may have decided that it's not active shooter, but once there's an active shooter and he shoots people and he harms people, he's considered an active shooter until they are neutralized. The, the rule of thumb is you always go in, you do not wait. We learned that from Columbine. Mm -hmm. We learned that from Virginia Tech and all the other shootings since. That the one thing you do not want to do is sit there and wait and do nothing. Your job is to go towards the gunfire, to find that shooter, to neutralize them. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to go down and you may lose your life as a law enforcement officer, or the other person that's shooting is going to go down and they're going to be neutralized. That's the only two outcomes. Chief, and I know that you were, I believe, a school resource officer um, when Columbine happened as well. So you know that both sides of the issue in the way of being present in the school and being called to the scene as well. On that idea of, of why there wasn't the reaction that you just spoke about, you know, we're learning a little bit, and, I, and admittedly, the problem here in part is that we're getting piecemeal information that's often then retracted at some particular point in time. We don't necessarily have the full story. Here we are seven days later. But the answer people are looking for is as to why people did not break rank. Like, why were there so many people that you think were in the hallways listening to um, the person who was the incident commander in charge. Were you surprised that no one broke rank or is that the way that it would go to say you got to wait until you're instructed before you can go in? No, I mean, I can, you know, maybe understand if one or two officers maybe stayed outside the building. You know, we saw that in the shooting down in Florida, but to have 19 people uh, stand around and listen to one person uh, that's extremely strange. It's odd. Um, you know, the only words that come to mind are groupthink. And I cannot believe for the life of me that nobody broke rank or at least said, hey, let's figure out a different plan. Maybe we can go through a window. Maybe we can, you know, have other type of equipment to get in there. Because, you know, even if he stopped shooting, there are children in there that could be bleeding. And time is of the essence, especially when you have a young child and a high-powered weapon it doesn't take long for that person uh, to lose their life. And so, you know, even if he wasn't actively shooting people at the time, he could have started at any time. Plus, there were people there that, that, that could have used medical attention. Why they didn't go in, I have, I have no idea. Um, I'm very interested to find out why out of those 19 people, um, not one of them stood up and said, the heck with this, I'm going in. And Chief, it just doesn't I'm make any sense to me. I'm really glad that you mentioned the idea of those who would have needed care, those who would have needed assistance in medical treatment. You know, I, I'm wondering on that particular aspect, is, is that why we have not gotten the accurate timeline? The idea of, was it known that people were in need of medical care? And the idea that an earlier intervention could have saved even one life, even two any lives whatsoever. And it's just something I, as to hear you as somebody who is as seasoned as you are, have such experience in this area to ask the same questions that laymen are asking all across the country as to why yeah. it, it really is something we have to know more about. Chief, thank you so much for helping us to unpack it and to, to ask those questions we need to hear. And I want to dig some, a little deeper now into the police response and the shifting narratives that are coming out of this tragedy. In fact, I'm wondering how are investigators going to sort out this truth now? Andrew McCabe is former deputy director of the FBI, and he is here now. 
Andrew, I'm glad that you're here. You heard me just speak to the chief about some of the questions that we've all had. The idea of how could it have taken so long? Why did it take so long? What is the law enforcement timeline we're dealing with here? And why haven't we gotten those answers? And I, I asked from your perspective, of course, um, about this idea of the barricade versus the active shooter. I'm not sure people understand why this distinction continues to be highlighted here. If it was a barricading situation, what is the protocol versus an active shooter? Why the distinction? Sure. Great question, Laura. So an active shooter, as most people are familiar now, is a situation where you have someone shooting in a public space that's occupied by many people. That's clearly the situation we had here. A barricaded subject is when you have usually one person who is armed and has blocked themselves off in a closed space and is essentially resisting law enforcement. Sometimes you have a barricaded subject who is also holding hostages. But even in a barricaded subject situation, which is not what we had in uh, Evalde, uh, if that person is holding hostages, you always have a tactical team present and ready to go in as soon as you sense that that barricaded subject presents a threat to those hostages. So even under that sort of thinking, it's, it's incomprehensible that the leadership over that critical incident in Texas made the decision to hold that team of 19 uh, men who are ready to go in. So they are very different concepts in law enforcement, but in this case, to be perfectly clear, what we had was an active shooter and those folks should have been sent in immediately on their arrival. And if they didn't know that initially, the second they heard shots later or were aware that shots had been fired later, then it would immediately go back to an active shooter again. It wouldn't, wouldn't simply stay in this stagnant position of a barricade if they now have active shooting happen. I mean, it just seems counterintuitive to me that would be the case. But I'm wondering now from your perspective as an investigator in particular, you know, when we have all these changing narratives, when we don't know all the answers, and I am inherently and naturally skeptical. Put in the prosecutor in me. I have questions. I have doubts. I want to understand what's going on. Add the mother. You have an exponential level of skepticism happening right now and fear adds to that as well. Let me ask you, if you're looking at this, how do you try to unpack and investigate and get to the truth? Knowing there's different narratives, sure. there is a distrust happening. Walk us through how an investigation looks from here. Sure. So I, of course, share all your skepticism mm -hmm. uh, naturally and, and especially in this situation. So what, what investigators will do is focus on those undisputable facts, things like the timeline in the way that it's established by things like the video capture inside the school, uh, the the phone calls to 911 that happened at definitive time, you know, places and times, maybe phone records between people who were involved in the incident, the, uh, the dispatcher calls to the uh, law enforcement folks uh, on, on, the, on the scene. And then they'll add into that the information they get from witnesses, whether those are police officers or leadership folks, or in this case, one of the most critical sources of information is from the actual child survivors. And that is, as you would understand as a mom, an incredibly sensitive thing to do to be able to sit down with some of those children if they're able to talk about their experiences, what they saw, uh, what, they t what they said 
to each other, maybe if they made those 911 phone calls. So you'd lay in all of those, all that informational, uh, the narrative that you get from those interviews on top of those undisputable facts that help you frame up the timeline. In this situation, much of that information exists. It's incredibly frustrating that we haven't heard more of it in a clear and concise manner so far. And just to be clear, these are interviews that you would perform as original ones, not relying on what was received from the investigators thus far, right? It would be something that would be original content that would be looked at? That's right. The, the Department of Justice, in their review of what happened here, they will go back in with FBI agents helping them, and they'll re-interview every one of those folks. The interesting thing here, though, Laura, is you will remember from your own time at DOJ, this is not a criminal investigation that they are conducting. So they won't have the normal uh, criminal process and grand jury proceedings behind them to really leverage people to force uh, cooperation and the production of, uh, of information. So you might have a situation with an individual like, for example, let's take the chief, Chief Arredondo, who apparently is refusing to talk to the uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety, um, if he continues to refuse to cooperate, there may be very little that DOJ or anyone else can do to force that cooperation. Without a legal hook or predicate here, we have to see what happens next, and that review will be so crucial. Thank you, Andrew McCabe. I appreciate you talking to us this evening. You know, this massacre has thrust the community of Uvalde into the national spotlight. And tonight, a unique glimpse at how guns are woven into the fabric of this small town what sets it apart, and the unspoken truths it exposes for countless towns across this country. That's next. The name Uvalde, Texas, is now forever tied to tragedy. A community of 16,000 people, which joins Newton, um, Newtown and, and Parkland and Columbine and so many others. While the world may be learning about Uvalde for the first time in the past week, those with roots in the community know the story extends well beyond the walls of Robb Elementary. And that includes my next guest, Neil Meyer, whose family connections to Uvalde date back generations. Neil Meyer, thank you for being here today. You, you wrote a really thought-provoking piece in the um, Washington Post, I believe, about these very concerns. And um, what struck me is that you said, as much as you obviously are pained by what has happened, you weren't surprised given the gun culture in Uvalde. Tell me a little bit more about this area as to why that was your sentiment. And of course, I understand you, you are not undermining or minimizing what's happened by not being surprised, but the culture itself is what shook you. Laura, thank you for having me. I, the, what I meant to convey in saying I wasn't surprised was that as I watched the events unfold, I, I understood them and, and I knew it was, it was a very complex set of events. And uh, it, was, it was that tragedy and that very, very deep sadness which drove me to write the article. Uh, I, I was born in Uvalde. I've lived there. Uh, my great-grandfather settled in Uvalde in the 1870s, and I grew up at my grandparents' ranch, which I still own in northern Uvalde, uh, and I grew up hunting and fishing there. So I understood the, the deep love in the community for, for those activities. They're still very important to the, to the community. 
And they, they, there is a very strong gun culture there. Uh, when I was growing up, it was quite different. Now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, just extraordinarily different in the types of weapons that could be purchased and the freedom with which people purchase those weapons. So to that extent, I was not surprised that, it, that, the, that this tragedy occurred. Uh, you had the social circumstances, which would, which would uh, lead to these kind of events. There's an extremely high poverty rate in, in Uvalde. One in three children live in poverty. Uh, there's uh, there's a, just a, a total freedom of, of people and their, and their, their ability to, to have guns. You have the, the most popular restaurant in town where this gunman apparently purchased his weapons. It's a, it's a restaurant with a, with, a, with a gun store inside of the restaurant. So you have to understand people think that that is normal and acceptable, that you could have somebody walk in, an 18-year-old, and buy a military-style uh, tactical weapon. But that's exactly what, what occurred. Now, so Neil, one could think about that. that, Excuse me, that one, one could think about that notion, though, and on, and on the one hand and say, look, it's so normalized. It's something that's so much, in, you know, a part of the fabric of the community that people don't expect there to be a violent outcome from the proliferation or the, the you know, uh, pervasiveness of these weapons. Did, did the idea that this might have happened, did that shock you even in spite of that, you know, the prevalence of the guns and the relative ease of just how much it was a part of the community? Unfortunately, no, it, it didn't really because... Uh, Violence has already been, has always been extremely high in, in Uvalde's history from its beginning uh, when it was founded through the, through the post-Civil War period, through the period during the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan was the dominating politics there until the current day when you, when you have, you know, uh, you know, a young boy, young 12-year-old boy, just, uh, just recent times, you know, accused of going to his neighbor's house and shooting him in the face. And which was in one, it was in my neighborhood. So this is the kind of thing that people uh, become immune to, learn to ex, uh, to ex, ex, accept, and, and like you say, they become a little bit callous about it. So it does occur that the community, though, is plagued with uh, with drug violence, with drugs, as 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 many uh, cities are in the United States, rural areas, and uh, it places a huge burden on the on the uh, on the city. But I think back to your segue into the, into the program, I think it was very important that you're questioning what actually happened on the ground and what happened uh, in terms of the command at that, at that crucial minute. But I think there are questions to be asked that go much higher, that go to the, to the chief of police. You know, there's, there's the, the police system is highly, or enforcement system is highly fragmented in Uvalde. You have six, only six policemen that cover all of the schools, that work for the schools. You have a very large, large police department with an elected official, chief of police. You have a sheriff's department with elected sheriffs. Then you have the Department of Public Safety, which has been brought in en masse recently by, by Governor Abbott uh, as, as, uh, as part of his Lone Star uh, efforts. Mm. And uh, then you have the Customs Border Patrol, a huge wow. presence of the Customs and Border Patrol. So that's why you, you saw that there was a huge reaction of, of legal enforcement uh, coming to the school and perhaps yeah. accounted for a lot of the fragmentation in the decision-making process about when to go into the school and rescue the children. Well, we'll see if that fragmentation is the source, but it's just, it breaks your heart to even think of all the different law enforcement entities you just named 
but you still have 19 children and two teachers dead at that school. Uvalde, Texas. It's horrible. Thank you, Neil Meyer. It's, yeah. it's, uh, thank, it's unconscionable. Thank, thank, God. You. thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. We're going to obviously continue thank and you. cover this really important um, aspect and the broader picture as well. But now to the breaking Supreme Court developments. We've got an exclusive update on the investigation into the leak that rocked the nation and may foreshadow a decision on Roe v. Wade. That's next. Now, a CNN exclusive report. The Supreme Court taking unprecedented measures to investigate the leaked draft opinion on abortion rights. The marshal of the court is taking steps to require law clerks to provide private cell phone data and also sign affidavits. Now, some clerks are apparently so alarmed, they're considering lawyering up. So what does all this mean for the Supreme Court? And could this mire the third branch in legal drama of the sort, well, frankly, it's not that used to. With us now is the person behind this exclusive reporting, the fabulous CNN legal analyst, Joan Biskupic. Joan, I'm glad you're here. Tell me what's going on. I mean, affidavits, private cell phones. This is not the court we remember. (laughs) Good to see you, Laura. Well, you know, it was four weeks ago today that the Chief Justice John Roberts launched this investigation into who might have leaked an early copy of... uh, a decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade to Politico. Uh, it was a, a February 10th draft, and the justices are still working on which way they're going to go in this in this case. And it's so disrupt. Look, look at how much it disrupted the public. First of all, for people on both sides wondering, does this mean Roe is going to be reversed and a uh, half century of privacy rights rolled back? But inside, it's obviously call, caused all sorts of disruption. And the chief doesn't want wants to know who did this breach, but also prevent further uh, further further leaks from the court. They've been working for four weeks to try to figure out how this happened. Obviously, they haven't gotten an answer yet, which is why they've escalated to uh, start taking steps to have clerks sign affidavits uh, that generally would uh, deny any kind of responsibility here, and that also to they've been asking. Uh, starting to ask about cell phone data. And we're not sure yet, Laura, whether that means just phone calls or it means texts, if it means images, it means everything on your cell phone. But it has concerned the law clerks enough that they uh, have been starting to you know, feel out potential for maybe getting lawyers. Yeah. Now, this is at an early stage and we're not sure what the court's going to do, but it certainly makes it suggest that the, the tensions that are already surrounding these cases are now going to be exacerbated because of this investigation. Well, I mean, on the one hand, they're in Washington, D.C., and you know how the story goes. You throw a rock, you hit 42 lawyers. There's no shortage of lawyers to actually be in Washington, D.C. But I'm wondering, sort of that answer to the question of you and what army? Like, who, who is able to compel this? Because you asking me for my cell phone as a Supreme Court justice or the, the court martial in some respect, they don't actually have the weight of the Department of Justice to force me to hand anything over, Right. No, absolutely not. And this is not yet a criminal investigation. It, it, I should make that very clear. The justices haven't called in the FBI. They haven't called in the Department of Justice. This is something they're trying to solve internally with the court's marshal. Uh, it's a woman by the name of Gail Curley who oversees the police force there. And she might be familiar to you, Laura, because you hear her every time you listen to oral arguments. She's the one who chants, oye, 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 uh, the court is now sitting. 
um, she she runs a, a fairly large police force, but they are not accustomed to doing these kinds of heavy duty investigations, you know, of broad scale personnel or of uh, cell phone data. So I'm not sure how this is exactly going to be conducted. And I want to make clear to to our viewers that even though this uh, part of the investigation is focusing on law clerks, there are many other people in that building who could be responsible for the disclosure that ended up with Politico. That first draft by Samuel Alito went to the nine justices, some you know, 36 law clerks, uh, other administrative people, probably a total of like 75 folks. Uh, and then there were hard copies circulated to the chambers. And just think somebody might have brought one home. I mean, just the possibilities of how this could have gotten out of the building and then into the wrong hand, so to speak, uh, are endless. And I think this this is a sign that they are just have not made enough headway to feel like they know that they're closing yeah. in on anyone. Now, that's as an outsider saying that there could be a potential that maybe they've already targeted some clerk and they want all the clerks to uh, follow through here, Laura. Well, you know, we, I we just don't, don't know, frankly, we, yeah, there's a lot we don't know. But you know what else? I mean, right. I know there's a big focus on obviously the potential for Roe v. Wade being overturned, but there are still a great deal of opinions yet to be issued in the Supreme Court. And this must be impacting the court's trust and in internal negotiations on even those cases as well. I mean, the, the ramifications could be quite extensive for years to come, as you've already shown us today. Thank you so much, Joan Biskupic. I appreciate your insight as always. Thanks, Laura. Now the question, of course, is, well, how's your bank account looking these days? We'll look at President Biden's new message on inflation, plus the new admission tonight by the Treasury Secretary in a CNN interview, what Janet Yellen says she was wrong about when it comes to inflation. That's next. So the White House is announcing a month-long effort to fight inflation, and that includes a face-to-face -face between the president and the Fed chair today. It also includes this admission from the former chair and current Treasury Secretary in a CNN interview. Well, um, look, I, I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand. Hmm. You need to be Janet Yellen to know that prices on just about everything have gone up for more than a year. Let's bring in CNN economics commentator Catherine Rampell. Catherine it's a little bit disturbing for a layman like myself to hear someone like Janet Yellen say that she got it wrong and didn't fully understand something in the economy. How did she not know? Uh, well, look, uh, if, if Janet Yellen can't predict these things, what hope is there for the rest of us? Uh, she's one of the best forecasters that the Fed has ever had. She was formerly the chair of the Fed. But she's not alone. If you look back to a year ago, what the Fed was forecasting, what Wall Street economists were predicting for the path of inflation, most of them, with some, some very loud exceptions, were expecting that we might have a short pop of inflation, 
Um, and then, it, you know, we, we heard this, this word all the time, it would be transitory and it would come back down as supply chains normalized. Uh, that obviously did not happen. And as the year wore on last year, it became more and more evident that many of the assumptions behind that forecast were much too optimistic. And then as uh, the Treasury Secretary mentioned in her comments that you just played, there were also an additional series of unexpected, un- unpredicted, and, and possibly unpredictable shocks, things like the war in Ukraine disrupting energy and food markets, for example, an avian flu that's affecting egg prices right now, a drought, um, various other kinds of things, you know, new COVID variants, China continuing to have these lockdowns more than two years mm-hmm. after this pandemic first hit the world. So some of it was about overly optimistic assumptions that were made a year ago, Uh, again, not only by the Treasury Secretary, not only by the administration, but by most economists. And some of it was about just getting really unlucky in the couple of years uh, that that have followed the pandemic start. Well, I tell you, I happen happen to appreciate candor when it comes to any official. I, I do appreciate it. I often really appreciate it when it's combined with what are you going to do about it now that it's been established. And so let's go there, Catherine, because the question now, of course, is what can the administration do about it? Okay, you got it wrong. The trajectory was not what you thought it would be. All the different things you spoke about. Can the Biden administration really do anything about this? The the um, the actual task of price stability belongs to the Fed, the Federal Reserve. That is part of their dual mandate, stable prices and maximum employment. They have the most potent tool available to get prices back under control. Uh, c- control is maybe the wrong word, uh, given, the co- given the connotations of price controls. To get inflation more moderate. Um, that's through raising interest rates. There are, however, some modest tools that the president does have at his disposal to, you know, get prices down a little bit on the margin. These are things like repealing some of the Trump tariffs. Uh, He can do that unilaterally. These were very unpopular among Democrats, by the way, when Trump put them into place. And for some reason, this administration has been dragging its feet about repealing them. And in fact, has extended many of them in some form or another. There are other things like, um, you know, we have these widespread labor shortages, which are also contributing to inflation. Part of the reason why we have these widespread labor shortages is that our immigration system, our legal immigration system is backed up. And again, that predates, uh, to some extent, the current president. Um, That's partly because of choices made to sabotage the immigration system by Donald Trump. That's partly because of the pandemic. But again, the administration has been dragging its feet in fixing many of those problems. And it has only belatedly been been dealing with some of the lower hanging fruit there. So there are some tools available um, that the administration, for some reason, I think because they're afraid of political blowback, near-term political blowback, they have been avoiding adopting. Well, if there's near-term political blowback, it doesn't like any of those solutions are necessarily going to be short-term solutions and would help in the long run. We'll see what happens, though. Thank you, Catherine Rampell, as always, for breaking it down. And look, there is one place that the economy is soaring. Forgive me. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. Here we go. Top Gun Maverick turned those fighter jets into rocket chips at the box office, making history. What led to this sky-high plot twist for the movie industry? That's next. Let me be perfectly blunt. 
You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. Well, Tom Cruise's Top Gun sequel soared past expectations. Forget managing them. Setting a record for the biggest Memorial Day weekend opening in box office history. Top Gun Maverick. See, I'm already giddy. I want to see this so badly. It earned well over $160 million, along with rave reviews. But a great weekend for the movies may also be a sign, frankly, of higher spirits in the country or just plain old escapism. Just two years ago, who would have thought that we'd ever see packed movie theaters again? Let's talk about this now with Paul Dergarabedian. He's a senior media analyst for Comscore. I was not going to mess up your name. I'm so glad you're here and excited to talk about this movie because I'm telling you, I'm champing at the bit to be able to see it. I have to ask you, there was a time people thought the movies were done. Like no one was going to anymore. Streaming was going to take over. What does this tell you? Well, it tells us that no matter what, comes its way. The movie theater is very resilient. And we saw this when television first came in. People thought that was the end of the movie theater. The home video revolution, the home theater revolution, the streaming, I don't know, evolution or revolution now. And yet the movie theater came back this weekend in a big way. This was a long time coming, Laura. I mean, a couple of years ago, the entire summer movie season didn't even earn $200 million. Normally, it earns $4 billion. So this is a big, big moment for movie theaters. Again, where we were two years ago, unbelievable that we're here right now. And by the way, it's not like Top Gun was out two years ago. We're talking about decades since we've actually seen the now sequel of this movie. I mean, he waited not only initially those decades, I remember, and we all still quote the need for speed and we think about Goose and Maverick. And I have all sorts of questions about why Meg Ryan wasn't in it and Kelly McGillis for another day. But I will ask this question about the idea of you know, why did he decide to make sure that it, it, it waited even two more years? Because, you know, that seemed to be a really big decision that had a crucial impact here. Oh, it certainly did. But come hell or high water, no way was Tom Cruise going to let Top Gun Maverick go to streaming. It'll go there eventually after it plays in the movie theater first. But there's just something about Tom Cruise. Look, the movie theater and we, the audience, made Tom Cruise a star. And he pays it back vigorously every day. Hangs out on the side of airplanes, off the side of buildings, flies jets, <laughs> helicopters. It's really nothing this guy can't do. And you can just tell his enthusiasm for just bringing great entertainment. He's got another movie, a Mission Impossible movie, Dead Reckoning Part 1, coming out next year. And there'll be another Mission Impossible. So every time out of the gate, Tom Cruise delivers. It's great for the audience. It's great for movie theaters. So the summer movie season is back and there was no one better to usher it in than Tom Cruise. What's funny about that, just thinking about Tom Cruise's career. I mean, you're talking about from The Firm to Risky Business, of course, to, um, you know, films that we know and love. Ethan Hawke, of course, Mission Impossible. All of these different films, thinking about it, this one has surpassed all those, right? Yeah, in terms, that's right, Laura. In terms of the opening weekend, great trivia question. Tom Cruise has never had a $100 million opening weekend until now with Top Gun Maverick. His last film, the or the closest one to this opening, was War of the Worlds 17 years ago with $64.8 million. 
That was Tom Cruise's biggest opening weekend. But he's about consistency. That was 17 years ago. 40. That's what, are you kidding? That was, see, now More I felt old all of a sudden, Paul, thinking that was 17 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. I guess it was. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm telling you, it took a while to get there, but he's about consistency. So Tom Cruise had about 44 movies released in 40 years, and almost half of them have earned over $100 million at the domestic box office. And worldwide, his movies have brought in now with this film about $10.5 billion unadjusted for inflation. This guy's the king of the box office. Yeah, sure. clearly. I mean, are these the people who went to the movies? Are these people who remember Top Gun? Is this a new audience coming in? Is he bringing a whole new fan base now? He's well, he's bringing back, I think, a lot of more mature moviegoers, as I like to say, who saw the first movie back in 86. <laughs> more mature moviegoer. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. More mature moviegoers who may have been waiting for a non superhero movie or a non franchise or horror film to go to the movie theater. Although I would argue these fighter pilots, this ensemble, they are superheroes, but this is very old fashioned storytelling. Such a Laura, you have, to, I can't believe you haven't seen this movie. It's so much fun. Don't you have FOMO? I mean, the fear of missing out is huge here. I do. If people were going and seeing it two and three times this weekend. Well, tell the people who did that to come babysit my kids, Paul, because I was with them while they were watching this movie. Thank you very much. But you know what? I'm going to go. I cannot wait to see it. And Paul, you've made us all very excited. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.